the second half of the chapter, actually, starting at verse 25. So, go ahead, you guys close up all the doors over there so you don't have to listen to the ice machine. Oh, you can if you want to, Mick. Doesn't bother. Actually, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me. Look at Genesis. That's pretty slick, huh? Nice drop back there. And in case somebody puts me on YouTube for some reason, I hope I, I hope I don't just do anything deserving of YouTube. That would be unfortunate. Unfortunate. Thanks, Mick. Let's come before the Lord and ask for His blessing this evening. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus this night. And Father, we are grateful, Lord, to have opportunity to have communion with you, to worship you. Lord, to put ourselves into your hands and Lord, just seek your your favor and your grace upon us. Father, that you would overshadow our lives, Lord, Father, that you would speak to us and instruct us. Lord, provide us wisdom, Lord, that we might walk before you in wisdom. Lord, it's the desire of our hearts to honor you in the way that we live, Lord, the things we do, the the things we say, Lord, the way that we think, Father, that our thoughts would reflect your presence. And Lord, we believe that your word is instrumental in this whole process, that your word is powerful, Lord, beyond our understanding to affect and change in us, Lord, to draw us close to you and, Father, to conform us to the image of Christ according to your plan, Father, your purpose. We lift up all all that's going on here tonight, Lord, the women's Bible study, the, uh, the youth group, Lord, their small groups and the meetings. And, Father, every single person, Lord, Father, let your Holy Spirit, Father, grip the hearts of people here tonight. And Lord, draw us close to you. We love you, Lord. We love you and we do want to thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So a little bit of background on Genesis chapter 30. Uh, Jacob and his his ever-expanding family are living in Haran, which is also called Padan Aram goes by both names in the scripture. Uh, it's interesting that it's called Haran because Haran was the name of Jacob's great uncle. His grandfather's brother was named Haran. was the son of Terah, Abraham's brother, who died actually in Ur of the Chaldees, which is somewhere over near where Kuwait is today. Before Abraham and his father and uh, one of Haran's three children, Lot, went over to the area of Syria, which is where Padan Aram and Haran is. There's really, you know, I've often wondered, is this place called Haran because of Abraham's brother? But there's nothing in the scripture to indicate that. It may just be a coincidence, which is very possible. But, um, you know, for those of you who have been fathers and husbands, For any length of times, you know that child-rearing years go by quickly. Kids go from zero to ten, like overnight. And it just happens really fast, faster than can be imagined. Jacob has been in this process of fathering at least 12 children in Haran, starting in his early 80s. That would not be like 
the date. That would be his age in the early 80s. He was in his early 80s. Now, needless to say that his 80-year-old is not going to be anything like my 80-year-old. You know, I could start to father nothing at the age of 80. I can guarantee you. You know, just but this guy was I mean obviously they lived a lot longer. What we're seeing in the lives of these men is the gradual genetic decline from the fall of Adam. Up until the time of the law of Moses, there is no indictment against people who want to marry close relatives. A whole bunch of these guys in this particular family are married to their half-sisters. Abraham is married to his half-sister. Uh, Bethul, Bethula is married to his half-sister. Um, uh, it's, very, it's very, very common. Uh, Sarah is the daughter of, of uh, Terah, Abraham's father. But they had different mothers. And uh, there is no indictment against this, which, you know, it goes on in human histories for, for a thousand, few thousand years. You know, the Caesars married their sisters, you know, and people up into the, uh, you know, people believe that maintaining a pure bloodline was dependent upon intermarriage and basically incest, unfortunately. But starting with the law of Moses... God makes an indictment against, you know, do not, do not marry your close relative. Do not marry your sister. In fact, he lays it out very specifically. And what we are to understand from that point is that the genetic degradation was taking place to the point that now for people to intermarry at that level, by the time we get to Moses, about 3,500 years ago, that the genetic uh, material that was involved in who we are was now, upon intermarriage, going to create huge problems for the people who intermarried. Things like, we know, hemophilia from the Habsburg line um, and other genetic defects that take place uh, in the lives of people who are intermarried in that kind of proximity. At this point, it still wasn't a problem. Um, again, we mentioned Jacob fathered 12 children, uh, makes all of these children, if you want to think about it in these terms, Syrians. They're all born in Syria. All of the 12 patriarchs are born in, well, all 11 of the 12 patriarchs are born in Syria. Benjamin is born in, in the land of Canaan. He's born in Israel. Um, except for the fact that they are born to Jacob, which is Israel, which from God's perspective, that makes all the difference. That's all God cares about. They're all Israeli. Very important. Um, in the middle of this, all this childbearing and, dare I say, wife swapping, although he doesn't swipe wives with anybody else. They're all his wives, all four of them. Uh, there's a great deal of turmoil in the family, in Jacob's family, and also between Jacob's family and the family of Laban, his uncle slash father-in-law. Um, had to be a somewhat difficult situation. There's no doubt a ton of family politics, uh, pretty well-defined pecking order as there was in all of these families. The family of Terah, this is Terah's family, Abraham's father, in Padan Aram. First of all, there was Laban's family and his sons at the top of the totem pole, okay? Then after them, you have Jacob's family with Rachel and Joseph 
at the top. And then below Rachel and Joseph, you have Leah and her six sons. Uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and then Dinah too is in there somewhere. Then you have Rachel's mill maid, Bilhah, her two sons, Dan and Ephtali. And then at the very bottom of the totem pole of this, and this very pronounced pecking order, okay, is uh, Leah's maid, Zilpha, her two sons, Gad and Asher. So, but the bottom line is kind of this. If you were not Rachel or Joseph, you were just one of them other kids running around, basically. And you, you got to imagine it's, it's pretty difficult to get to know that many children on a really close basis. But the, on the other hand, you got to think, well, you know, there was no television, no radio, no video games, no internet. They didn't have Candy Crush. Uh, they probably, these people actually spent time talking to one another in person. Hard to believe, I know. And although the two sisters probably lived in two separate tent complexes, okay, not too much different than the nomadic tents that you would see if you were to go to Israel today. And the reason for that is that they are, they're herds people. They're, they're with the animals. They're taking care of these animals in the field. And by and large, their location is determined by a lot of that. Um, folks, we serve a God of justice, a God of truth. He values rightness above little else. In fact, you know, if I don't miss my guess, when God is done with this world, there is going to be zero injustice. Every single deed, good, bad, and indifferent, will have received an appropriate reward. Everything. God is not likely to allow injustice to stand on any level. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is he. Very clear, very plain. Psalm 33, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And especially, especially when it has to do with his chosen people to whom he has promised great and precious promises. Look at... uh, Genesis chapter 30, verse 25. It came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you. And let me go, for you have known my service which I have done for you. Now, this is essentially about 14 years or so into Jacob's service to his uncle slash father-in-law. I think we can speculate that this has was something that has been in the mind of Jacob for the past 15 to 20 years. But still, in his thoughts on some level, Back in Genesis chapter 28, verse 13, the Lord spoke to Jacob from the dream that he had in Bethel. And behold, the Lord stood above the ladder, actually, that he saw in the dream, angels going up and down it, and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you 
and to your descendants. And your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. You and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your seed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Very clear, very plain. Any of you remember the situation? Uh, Jacob got up in the morning and he was, I think, reasonably speaking, freaked out of his mind. He was beside himself with the fact that God is in this place. In fact, he named it Bethel, the house of God. God is in this set up a, the rock that was his pillar, poured oil. I don't imagine he had a lot of oil with him. Poured oil on it and I made a sacrifice right there, the house of God. He was moved. Jacob knew God's plan to bring him again to Canaan. He knew of God's promises to himself, obviously, and also to his grandfather and his father. He was familiar with these things. Now, they had been rehearsed to him many times as a young man. This was not optional equipment as the grandson of Abraham. He knew this stuff forward and backwards. And he knew that the promises of God revolved around his family and the land specifically. It's interesting that he, when he approaches his father-in-law Laban, he says, send me back to my land. You know, he doesn't own any land in Canaan. His family doesn't have any. The only land that they have in Canaan is the land that Sarah is buried in. That's the only land that they own there. They're just wanderers for the most part at this point. And of course, we, we know it's going to be some, you know, going on 500 years before they do actually have a possession in that land. No doubt, you know, with reference to the promises, he had a lot on his plate over the last 20 years. But important point, when the Lord communicates to you, you're not likely to forget or misplace or otherwise confuse it. One of the things, the interesting things about the Mormon prophet, Joseph Smith, um, when he was discovered the golden plates from which he translated the Book of Mormon, supposedly, um, that, you know, the angel Moroni appeared to him. And he explained that at length to people, gave him the magic glasses so he could translate from the golden plates that the Book of Mormon were written on for him, you know. And then... A few years later, he accounted, made an accounting of the whole event and said that the angel Moroni and the father appeared to him. A few years after that, it was the angel Moroni, the father and Jesus also appeared there to him in person. And then subsequently, a few years after that, all the holy angels showed up at that meeting as well. But it's interesting how he remembered different things as time passed on. You know, God speaks to you. You're liable to remember it. You're li it's liable to make a a dent in your brain and get your attention. Of course, and then, you know, there's the fact that God is always able to remind you of those things. In verse 27, his father-in-law responds to him. Laban said to him, please stay if I have found favor in your eyes. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, name me your wages and I will give it. It's interesting to study through, especially in the scripture, I think, the cultural influences 
through the Scripture. You know, this particular event, this meeting between Laban and Jacob, takes place a little less than 4,000 years ago. It's a long time. But it's interesting how people are generally much more structured and formal in the way that they communicate with one another. And I, and I think, you know, the, the culture that you and I live in the United States here in the Western world is probably at the very lowest mark of civility in terms of how people communicate with one another. Um, Laban says to him, if I have found favor in your eyes, very, very formal. And this kind of reference, it shows up from Genesis all the way through to the book of Esther to the time of the exile. And that's, that's you know, 25, 3,000 years in, in the neighborhood there. Laban is the elder person, and yet he's using this formal language. Notice that he doesn't exactly ask, he says, please stay, please stay. If I have found favor in your eyes, he implies it to him. Um, there's something so important about maintaining the structure and restraint within culture and polite conversation. To call people um, ma'am and sir, to refer to people in a respectful kind of sense. In all, our culture today, uh, real rule of thumb, the people that you are closest to or who you know best, you refer to as in the most rude terms. You know, if I, if I call you dummy, that means you're my really good friend, you know, whereas if I call you, sir, that means I probably don't know you at all. And I, I want to suggest to you that that's a problem. That's a problem. When a person is referred to respectively, even though that person may not be respectable, people have a tendency to live up to their expectations. And so when you treat a not respectable person respectably, you're much more likely to receive a benevolent response from them. Now, it, it can be just empty formality, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. What determines that is the heart and the mind of the person using the language. You, it doesn't have to be empty. Just like liturgy in a church, many of the traditional churches in the Western world today, like the Anglican Church, Episcopalian Church, uh, Lutheran Church, use liturgies. They have written out prayers that are, you know, there for them in every service they get. To, they get the same diet over and over again. You can always uh, tell when you're talking to a former Catholic here at the church because when you say, and the Lord bless you, and they will say, and you as well. Because it's just part of the liturgy. It just kind of jumps out of their mouth automatically, you know, because they were indoctrinated as children and going through that. But liturgy doesn't have to be. I'll never forget. I, I did a funeral service at a Lutheran church here in Pasadena some years ago, and they had the whole liturgy all written out there. And I was reading it and it was awesome. It was it was awesome. And I thought, you know, if you read this and your heart was in it, this is amazing stuff. It's not, there's nothing empty about it. But again, it, it's dependent upon the heart and the mind of the individual that's, that's taken advantage of it. This guy, Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, like most of us, he's a complex guy. He is both foolish and wise. We see his foolishness, most notably, I think, greatest illustration of foolishness, one of the greatest in the Bible, 
marrying off his poor daughter Leah to Jacob without his knowledge in chapter 29. Hard to imagine a crueler thing to do to somebody, to, to either his nephew or his daughter, especially his daughter. You know, uh, for some untold reason, he thought this was a good idea. We're just going to sneak this by. He'll never notice. Yeah. Genesis 30, 26, Laban said, well, you know, it, it must not be done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Oh, well, it, it must not be done to tell the groom either. Is that part of the deal? If that was how he represented the choice. That doesn't deal with the issue and the, the, that created the situation without the knowledge of the groom. Um, this is the worst kind of deception. And again, we serve a God of justice, don't we? There are consequences to the actions of men and women. There are consequences in our lives, certainly for Laban, but also for the whole family. And isn't that the way it is? Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore put away lying. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And what does that mean? It's trying to communicate this idea that nobody sins to himself. When I lie to you, you're affected by my sin. And what goes around comes around. It has a way of infecting people. Folks, believe it or not, whatever you do in your life, good, bad, or indifferent, it affects every other human being on this planet. Every single living human being and probably the lives of some who've passed away and certainly the lives of those who aren't born yet. Now, I know that idea is difficult to imagine, but trust me, it's the truth. You touch the lives of every single human being on this planet the same way that God, God does not do anything in this world without affecting everything in this world because it's all connected. It's all integrally connected. The person who suffered most in that marriage situation was his daughter, Leah, I really believe. I mean, think for a moment. This young woman spent her life as the older daughter, the sister of the pretty daughter. That's who she was. Every day of her life, everywhere she went, she went with her daughter and everybody fawned and fussed over Rachel because Rachel was gorgeous and Leah was just there. Hi, you know, this is her situation. And then... In one night, her wedding night, something somebody might look forward to, I don't know, her wedding night, she loses her sister, she loses her husband, she loses her father. She doesn't want to have anything to do with this guy after this situation. Her husband or her sister are, how could you do this? How could you be a part of this? Which is basically her response to her father. How could you do this to me? I'm sure he had plenty of elaborate explanation for why it was in her own best interests. Again, we live in a world of justice. And I mean that. It doesn't seem that way, does it? It doesn't seem like we live in a world where justice is served. It seems like we live in a world where anything goes and evil conduct is seldom dealt with. And that's the, that's the dangerous thing. is because people persuade themselves that that's the case. People watch movies where evil men get away with murder and worse, okay? And this emboldens the hearts of evil people to do things. Just movies. Not even the real example that you see on the streets of evil people doing things and getting away with it. Don't be fooled. 
You live in a world where nobody gets away with anything. Anything. If they do not receive retribution in this world, they will. God does not miss any single thing that transpires. And a good reason that you and I, who understand this to be true, first, we have a higher accountability. And secondly, we recognize that we are answerable to the Lord for the things that we do. All the more reason for us to hope in the person of Christ. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your head together. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not on the hope that you're a good guy, that you do the best that you can, that you go to church, that you've prayed and received Christ, that you read the Bible every day, that you pray every day. Those are all good things. Do that. Do those things. That's awesome. But rest your hope fully, entirely, upon the grace that is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is my hope in every possible way. He is our only hope. And those others, those other people who do not know the truth of Christ, the Bible says that we are the ambassadors of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 5.20, Now then, we, as ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And we should seek Christ's favor on behalf of the ungodly. You know, it's fascinating how often this doesn't happen. People, Christians, find an excuse to see unbelievers as unworthy of God's grace. Now, they don't come out and say that. They're not going to say, you know, don't mess with those people. God doesn't want to help them. But in the conduct, if you watch the conduct of people, if you, if you could follow them around all day and all night and observe the way that they conduct themselves toward others, that's the impression that you're going to get. And it is tragic. We are all unworthy of God's grace and forgiveness. Every one of us. But here in Genesis, of course, we're not dealing with Christians. And they're not even really Jews yet. Judah has just been born a few years back. They are certainly the children of Abraham. And yet still, Jacob is a servant of God. And he knows God is real. And know it or not, and he should have known, he has a responsibility to conduct himself accordingly. And there's really, in, in the narrative, as you read through it, there's some good reason to believe that Jacob's life has had some effect upon Laban. That Jacob's life has communicated the truth of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to his uncle. Um, whether his integrity, his work ethic, his conduct could touch the heart of his uncle. Uh, Laban might be moved by Jacob's life to the possibility of faith in the God of Abraham. And now Jacob, that's really, that's Jacob's calling. We see some, some of Laban's wisdom in verse 27, and maybe some other things too. Laban said to him, please stay. And notice, please, the stay is added by the translators. If you notice, it's written in italics. He doesn't really stay. say stay. 
He says, please, if I found favor in your sight. He's implying that he wants, he's being very polite, wants him to stay. If I found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Now, okay, let's run through the possibilities. It could be that Laban's just posturing for influence to get Jacob to stay because He's offering a great service. He's, he's good to have around, knows what he's doing, good with animals. The herds and flocks, they're all growing. Let's see what we can do to get him to stay. So I'll just, you know, I'll play this part. I'll get him to do it. It's likely that he recognizes the fact that Jacob has been poorly treated, that he's not been really compensated for his work rightly. Let's see, what did he get paid for these years of labor? He got the two wives. That's it. And then, of course, the two Servant girls too. So he's got four wives to show for that and probably more in trouble than he knows what to do with. So he's looking at that and thinking, this was a bad bargain. I'm not, I'm not sure this was really great. It seems consistent with Laban's character later in the narrative that he really did consider the Lord God of the Bible to some degree having favor upon Jacob. And it's also possible that Laban, the Syrian, is relying on soothsaying and demonic idolatry in his persuasion that Jacob is blessed and that the Lord is blessing him. Let me give you an example. This verse I just read to you, verse 27. Please, please stay if I found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. In the Revised Standard Version, listen to what it says. Laban said to him, if you will allow me to say so, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now, the word by experience in the New King James in verse 27 is translated a whole bunch of times in the Old Testament, divination. So it very well could be that Laban is divining or you know doing some kind of soothsaying activity and he realizes that God is having favor and he's recognizing God's favor upon Jacob in that way. Either, either way. He wants to profit from such an opportunity. Now, notice how nice Laban is to Jacob. He is treating him with a very, very high regard. And you got to think, this has got to affect the way that Jacob treats his uncle. I mention this because the time is coming very soon. If you read Genesis chapter 31, verse 5, Jacob speaking to his two wives, he says to them, I see your father's countenance that it is not favorable toward me as before. But the God of my father has been with me. So there, by the time we get to chapter 31, the beginning of 31, all of a sudden Laban's attitude has changed towards Jacob. That's a huge, I mean, if they weren't getting along well, no amount of payment is going to make you want to stay with your whole family in that kind of a situation. For now, everything is very formal, polite, at least to the point Laban is very much favorable towards Jacob and is pleased to have him around. Whether his motivation is life experience, divination, who knows. But the bottom line is Laban wants him to stay. 29, look at verse 29, Jacob's response. Jacob said to him, You know how I have served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you had before I came was little and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now, when shall I also provide for my house? He's, he's making a reasonable request. Jacob's appeal to Laban's knowledge. He, he, he says, you know this. You know these things. Good idea. 
Appeal to the things that he knows. Jacob's appeal is according to the Lord's blessing. Notice, he doesn't take credit since my coming, but still he gives God the glory, doesn't it? It's what he says. Since, you know, since I have been here, the Lord has blessed you since my coming. Right there in verse 30. Question. When unbelievers commend you for doing a good job, are you inclined to give God the glory? Well, why should I? They're unbelievers. They won't understand. Okay, I understand that. But you got to see that exactly. That's really the point. The fact that they're unbelievers. It's an opportunity. And honestly, you got to realize God's the one who blesses your effort. You know, I know every time Dr. Rex drills somebody's tooth, he's praying for God's help and direction. At least he is when he's working on my mouth. You know, and seriously, whatever your job is, whatever you do as a professional life, you should be praying daily for God's help and his direction. Somebody's going to come alongside you and say, man, you're doing a good job. Don't you have some responsibility to acknowledge the Lord before these people, especially, especially if they are unbelievers? Yeah, but you know what? My boss, you know, he's he's a very powerful guy. He's I mean, he's he can do if if he doesn't like what I say or if he gives me a dirty look, or something, I mean, it could be heads could roll. Well, OK, yeah, I, I understand that. Of course, then there's the example of uh, Joseph talking to Pharaoh in Genesis 41, 16. Pharaoh, Joseph gets called up from the prison, cleaned up, taken up in front of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I understand you can, you can uh, interpret dreams. And in Genesis 41, 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Wow. But what if, what if it's a real difficult situation? You know, I mean, with life and death situation, terrible things on the line, you know, like, uh, like when Nebuchadnezzar was killing all of the wise men in Babylon because none of them would give him a legitimate answer to what his dream was. And Daniel, in Daniel 2.27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded the wise men, astrologers, magicians, and soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. Your dream and the visions in your head upon your bed were these. Well, yeah, that's Joseph and Daniel. I ain't Joseph or Daniel. Why not? That guy's just like you. Daniel was, maybe Daniel was 20 years old. He was a young man. Here, in the presence of Laban, Jacob gives God credit for the goodness shown him working for Laban. Can we not give God glory, the glory that he rightly deserves when we are commended by our superiors? Why not? Well, they think we're foolish. Well, we are foolish, especially if 
we fail to give God the credit he deserves for his hand of goodness upon our lives, we're very foolish. Remember, there are consequences, aren't there? You want God to bless you? You want you want give God the glory that he deserves. Make a stand for the truth. Laban responds here in verse 31 very reasonably. So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Notice, Jacob, like all of us, especially when it's our own interest, is a fan of justice. You shall not give me anything. Romans 4.4 4 tells us, Now to him who works, wages are not counted as grace. It's not a gift. It's a debt. Jacob understands and is unwilling to have his situation characterized any other way than payment for his labor. And as Jacob had a plan detailed, he details it out for Laban. Verse 32, Let me pass through all your flock today. Removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep, all the brown ones among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled ones among the goats. These shall be my wages. Now, Daryl brought up last week how this concept of spotted and speckled sheep and goats were considered akin to imperfections. No doubt that Jacob was willing to humble himself by taking his wages in the animals that are thought less valuable, perhaps, than the others. These particular animals are genetically regressive. Unless, you know, you've got two brown sheep together, then obviously going to have a brown lamb. But for the most part, left to themselves, they are going to be less common. And they're going to be less... The other thing is that it becomes obvious whether an animal belonged to... Jacob's family or Laban's family. Not a difficult thing. You look at them. There they are. Those are my sheep. Those are your sheep. Really easy. He says in verse 33, So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. Laban said, Oh, that it were according to your word. Again, notice the formality. Laban thinks it's a great idea. This is a pretty successful negotiation. If you think about it, think about it carefully, it may not work out so well for Laban in the long run. I mean, if indeed the Lord has blessed Laban because of Jacob, now that their possessions are entirely separated, and if the blessing of the Lord is evident upon Jacob, then the herds of Laban could potentially suffer as a result. Did anybody see this coming? I don't think Laban did. Not at all. In verse 35, he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, and everyone that had some white in it. And the brown ones among the lambs, he gave them into the hands of his sons. Then he with three days journey between himself and Jacob. Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Now, three days, three days journey is quite a distance. That's quite a, quite a far piece of, to cover. Um, notice Laban did this, not Jacob. Jacob didn't put that much space in. I'm sure there was mutual consent, but 
good thing that Jacob had access to such a developed workforce. He's got all these sons running around. So otherwise, to care for both flocks three days apart from one another would be quite a task. I imagine they'd be pitching their tents somewhere in the middle. Pretty tough. And they do move, so it may not always have been three days apart. The scripture does tell us, you know, in 2 Corinthians 6.17, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Speaking, you know, separation of God from the people of the nations. And that's really what's going on here, at least partially. Unfortunately, as far as our flesh is concerned, you know, partially connected is connected. There's no such thing as partially connected, at least as far as your flesh is concerned. You may know already, partial separation from your carnal nature doesn't work at all. Separation from the world has to be decisive and unconditional. Three days distance is a lengthy umbilical cord, but it's still connected, and connected is connected. Jacob is still connected, but we will see that God has a plan for that also. Then, of course, Jacob has a plan and also some kind of an interesting scheme. You got to remember, Jacob is Rebecca's son, right? And Rebecca heard everything. She didn't miss anything. In verse 37, Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of almond and chestnut trees. He peeled white strips in them and exposed the white, which was in the rods. Then, and the rods, which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Very interesting. Bible skeptics would just love to seize upon this passage in order to discredit the scripture from a scientific perspective. I mean, basically saying, look at this ridiculous document. The Bible claims that the genetic makeup of animals is determined by things impressed upon them visually at the time of conception. There could not possibly be anything less scientific or more ridiculous. The answer, no, I, you know, I don't think there could be anything more ridiculous. This was what even some educated people believed into parts of the 19th century. They thought that such things were possible for, you know, uh, people, the lady has a really hairy baby, you know, yeah, she was scared by a bear, you know, she was four months pregnant. Seriously, I, ed, people, educated people into the 19th century held these ideas. But however, let's be clear, okay? This is an accurate portrayal of what Jacob believed. This is what Jacob believed, and he practiced it. We have the whole thing laid out in the narrative right here. It is not, as we see in the narrative, identified by the Scripture or by the Lord as being factual or substantially true. The Bible doesn't say this is actually what happened. The Bible doesn't even tell us that these animals bore uh, a color or kind of offspring because they looked at the poplar or almond or chestnut, tree rods or... Whatever it was, it just tells us Jacob did this. And the animals did bear in a particular fashion. Not that there is a scientific connection between the two, because there's not, as far as I know, none in the world. The Bible doesn't necessarily support Jacob's theory. What the Bible does tell us is that God will bless people, no matter how backward and foolish they might be. God, in verse 40 
Jacob separated the lambs. He made the flocks face towards the streaked and the brown of the flock of Laban. He put his own flocks by themselves, did not put them with Laban's flock. And it came to pass that whenever the stronger livestock conceived, that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. Okay, Jacob had striped, speckled, spotted goats, brown sheep, and they were stronger than the other ones. How did this happen? God blessed him. I mean, it shows you two things. God is blessing Jacob, not Laban. The poplar rods, not the speckled goats or the brown sheep. God is blessing Jacob. No other thing than that. Psalm 75 verse 6 says, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. God has a plan for Jacob that has been evident for some time. God intends to bless him as his entire crazy out of control family. And what God intends to do, God will do. Now, I'm sure that you see that in the life of Jacob in Genesis. Do you see that in your own life? Do you recognize that God has a plan for your life? Just because there isn't a 5,000-year-old book with your name written in it, with the details of your family and the doings, does not mean that God does not have a pronounced, specific, essential plan for your life. He does. And you've got to have a handle on that. You've got to know that God has a specific purpose for you. And that every day of your life is essential in putting together the purpose that God has called you to. You've got to be answerable to that truth. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 5, one of my favorite scriptures, the prayer of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Listen to what she says as she prays to the Lord. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up, which, by the way, might be reference to resurrection right there in Hannah's prayer. The Lord makes poor. And he makes rich. He brings low. He lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set him among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength... No man shall prevail. Here's another one for you. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, Simon Peter is visiting the house of the Roman centurion Cornelius. And he has some substantial revelation. Acts 10.34, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, 
I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. God shows no partiality. Well, then why is God blessing Jacob and not blessing the family of Laban if God shows no partiality? Does Jacob deserve it? It doesn't. It really doesn't. Jacob is the recipient of God's promises. Does he deserve God's promises? No, he doesn't. To be fair and honest, folks, we have to say that there is something about Jacob that God sees that makes him want to raise up a nation of people called by his name. And he will call them Israel, ruled by God. When God says in Acts 10.34, God shows no partiality, he does not mean God treats everyone the same. He does not treat everyone the same. But question, does he mean that God provides an opportunity to every person to receive the blessing of God. And then depending upon what they do with that opportunity, God determines how he is able to bless them. Good question, don't you think? If God is a God of justice, and he is, then you are going to wind up with an idea that is very close to this. And if not, you will lose the idea of God as just. There are no two ways about it. People are forever taking credit for the things that God does. I'm afraid that really is what Jacob is doing here. Wow, I really got all those flocks and herds to be born spotted and speckled and brown. I'm just a heck of a guy. I, you know, put those, you know, where'd you get that idea, Jacob? Well, you know, I just thought it up. Put those rods in there and then they all were, you know, who did this? God. God did it. Jacob didn't have anything to do with it, really. Jacob is the recipient of God's promises. But I have to tell you, you really think he might have had a much less complicated and easier life had he seen the Lord directly involved in his situation from day to day. Basically, he made a lot of trouble for himself. People like to take credit for the things that God does. They like it until they receive the consequences. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, King Nebuchadnezzar, hanging out on the wall of his city one day, spoke saying, is this not great Babylon that I have built my royal dwelling by my mighty power and for my honor and my majesty? Yeah, I'd like to spend the next seven years eating grass. He did. He seven years, you know, and in, in dramatic need of a manicure and a pedicure, I understand as well. You hear from people from time to time in church talking about how a brother or sister is gifted in some particular way or another. And the sad thing is, this is, this is real, that somehow the credit gets attached to the person. It happens, realistically. Instead of the one that gives the gift, we should be very careful of that, folks. People start to believe the things that are said of them, and it is very dangerous. A guy lifted up, with international exposure in the media, 
Not a place anyone should want to be. You don't want to be there, you know. People so desire to be famous, as maybe you did when you were a young man. I know I did. That sounded like a great idea. See your name in lights. You know, your face on billboards. So that then, you know, you no longer can go out to Del Taco with your family and eat a meal in peace without rude and obnoxious people harassing you and bothering your children everywhere that you go 24 hours a day. No thanks. Why would any person want to be appreciated and lauded by the masses who don't know you at all? All these people who don't know me, they just think I'm wonderful. Well, what do the people who know you think? Couldn't possibly be less significant. In the final analysis, folks, there's only one opinion of your life that really matters. And that is the opinion of God. I am afraid all the rest of this public notoriety, it just confuses the issue. People don't realize what's really important and what's not. And you know, it's, it's painful to me anyway, to watch young people who are famous trying to find some significance for their lives. You know, it just, they're, it's horrible. It's horrible. And I, I, I hurt for them. And I'll, a lot of times, you know, they're, they're, it's like they're trying to sell this thing. They're trying to convince themselves that their life is really wonderful. You know, they're trying to convince them and other people. And it's, it's tragic. In verse 43, it says, Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, camels and donkeys. Now, basically, this dramatic expanse in the life of Jacob took place over a period of about six years. He gained this vast wealth. Before that time, his payment for working for Laban had been the receiving of his two wives. But... To be a person of great substance is not necessarily a great thing either. You know, the more stuff is more trouble. As it is with things, the more you own, the greater the probability is not that you will own more, but that the things will actually own you and require your time and your effort and your energy to maintain and support and care for this great empire that you have established. You know, people want to be successful because they imagine success will afford them a greater freedom to be and to do what they really want to do. But is that really the case? I truly believe that the opposite is often the case. A person becomes successful and they are more and more necessary to the maintenance of this machine that they've set in motion and for them to remove themselves threatens the collapse of everything that they hold there and they become slaves to their own success. There's, of course, a way to avoid that. And that is hardship. Difficulty. Hardship will cut a man right down to size, gentlemen. We spend all of our time trying to avoid hardship, of course, don't we? What's up with us? Jacob is the Lord's guy. A.W. Tozer said, God never uses a man mightily 
unless he first hurts him deeply. Jacob is on his way to becoming Israel. But it's going to be a bumpy ride. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the witness of your word, for the truth you set forth in the lives of these people that you love so much. We're grateful, Lord. It does, Lord, does us such good to learn from the missteps of the people that you have worked in. And Father, we pray for your blessing. Let your spirit guide and direct us as your servants. Father, let us learn and provide good wisdom, Lord, to one another, to encourage one another as you've intended. Father, give us boldness to be named with the name of Christ, that we are willing to stand forth and tell people the truth, what we believe, who we are, to not be intimidated by the lies of this world. That Father, your spirit might touch the hearts of people because we know, Lord, that it is your work, not ours. It's not what we do, but Father, it is your presence with us that makes all the difference. We pray tonight, Father, I just want to lift up my brothers to you and for those who are struggling with different issues. Set your hand upon them, Lord. Encourage their hearts. Strengthen them. And we pray, Father, that your word would speak to us so specifically. Let your word, Father, just present us with those verses of Scripture that will encourage and strengthen and bless us, Lord, that we would, Lord, hold ourselves accountable to your purpose, to walk before you and to honor you in all our ways. We love you. Father, we do thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.